Okay, so this last line about creation is a gift. Did I just jump through? I did. Okay. So giving, when we use giving, it indicates both the one who gives and the one who receives the gift, as well as the relation established between the two. So this is where John Paul II kind of uses giving in a universal way. So when he says gift, it refers to the person who gives. It also refers to the act of receiving the gift of another. And it refers to the relation between the two. So if we took Pope Benedict's Trinitarian Anthropology, where you have being from, being with, being for, he's just using gift, gift, gift. And this is what gets confusing for people. Right? Like, stewardship is all about giving. Right? Monsignor Barr gives these great stewardship homilies, and he's just like, gift and gift and giftedness, and we have to gifted, gifted, gifted. I'm like, what? Which way is that relationship going? You know, because one of the things I've talked to uh, Chris about a lot is, like, part of, like, the gift of our time is making ourselves available to receive from our Lord. You know, like that should be the first thing that we want to do and encourage people to do is make the gift of your time to make yourself available to receive from our Lord. To have that encounter with our Lord that will then move you to action and service of the community. But so often when I review or when I've looked at stewardship forums, it's like, I'm going to bake cookies, I'm going to like babysit kids, I'm going to, it's all this stuff like, what are you going to do for me? instead of like initiating from the parent to the child, like initiating from the church to the people, like we're going to do this for you and then see what comes out of it. You know, and we see this a lot in Protestant churches are very good at this. They have like 10 healing ministries going on. If you have a problem, you can go to Brian Church and there's some group for your problem. doesn't matter what your problem is. And if you have a problem and nobody else has that problem, they'll start a group. Because they think like 10 other people will probably have that problem and they'll come. And that's what, you know, I think we're also seeing too with people who are going through the Unbound ministry here in the diocese. We've only been doing it for a few months. But as people go through it, all of a sudden they're like, they go tell 10 people what happened to them. And I asked this lady, I was like, how many people did you tell about Unbound? 10. How many people did you tell about your last Bible study? One. Because there's something happening there that they're receiving from our Lord. Then they want to go give. Go ahead. I was a Protestant evangelical pastor. And one of the problems with this group and, and forming groups mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff is the focus shifts yeah. from God to the person. And God starts being made over into the image of man mm-hmm. rather than man being yeah, that's the danger that we can all run. Um, but that's easily remedied. You know, it's easily remedied. And because one of our weaknesses as Catholics is that we, people have these problems and we're like, well, I don't know what to do. Pray the rosary. <laughs> and sometimes that's what the answer that people get when they do need like something to help them along um, in some way of feeling part of a community. Like, it's amazing the stories I hear in the Catholic divorce group that I run. 
and just these are just people's lives and what they went through and like they were struggling in their marriage and so they went to the church to get help and they were told well unless you're being abused then you can't do anything and just pray more and you'll be okay that's horrible to hear and then they get divorced and then they come back I just got divorced well come back in a year and you can start your annulment yay want to be and then if they find another Catholic to marry then they come back for their annulment but if they don't they end up like going somewhere else and that happens a lot more than we want to admit that it happens and so the more that we can do Because this is just how the gospel has been spread for a long time. Missionaries who would go to foreign countries, they would just build a hospital and start a school. And then as they were doing these things to help the people, they start preaching the gospel to them. And then they're converted. And and we live like in that missionary time period right now where we need to like preach the gospel to people who need to be converted. But the new poor, John Paul II says in Novo Millennio Iniente, the new poor are often rich. Like the new poor are people who feel abandoned or alone, people who suffer from depression, people from broken families, people who suffer with addictions. These are the new poor. And we're called to see Christ in the face of the poor. And whatever you do for the least of these little ones, you do for me. And the least of these little ones are often affluent people that just don't know our Lord. You know, and our focus really, like, there's a whole like mission territory out there that's exciting and amazing because as people who feel alone or abandoned or disconnected and they've never really known love and they start to find love, it's like that's the greatest joy that we can ever have is watching the light come on in their eyes and watching them as they come to know themselves and as they come to know Christ. And then they do amazing things and you just like watch them do amazing things. Um... Yeah, there's this, uh, I don't know, for example, there's somebody who came and saw me about a year ago, and they're kind of like a fringe person, and they had a lot of like family problems and issues in their marriage, things like that. They started coming to spiritual direction. We just started working on like your identity as a daughter, your identity as a daughter all the time, your identity as a daughter, inviting our Lord into your life. And as she's teaching her how to pray Lexio Divina, and as she would pray... Um, and start to really invite our Lord into her life and recognize our Lord's always there. She said, you know, the other day I was at the park and I was watching my kids and I just got bored. And I realized, like, Jesus never gets bored watching me. And then, and then a few months later, she, like, she went on this crusade to cover up all the, like, nasty magazines in the grocery stores. And, like, she got all the grocery stores to cover up their Cosmopolitan magazines in the whole Lincoln area. Because she like found a voice and had a voice because she was confident in who she was. She would never have done that. Like she's not like a di- she's not like a dynamic Catholic according to Matthew Kelly. <laughs> but she came to know her Lord, and then it changed her life. And then she wanted to go do something. You know, like that's what like that's how evangelization happens. And um, and we come to like receive that from our Lord, and so. Like this giving, um, there's a relation at the creation of man. So the fact that God created us put us in relationship with him. Right? Giving only has meaning, or giving has meaning only in relation to us. 
Right? The world is created for man. So creation is a gift that God gave to us. Because man appears in it, who as an image of God is able to understand the very meaning of the gift and the call from nothing to existence. We're able to understand I, was, I didn't exist and now I exist. My whole life is a gift. Lord, I praise you for the wonder of my being. Adam, after having become completely conscious of his own solitude among all the living beings on the earth, awaits a help similar to himself. None of the beings, the animals, offers him the basic conditions to make it possible to exist in a relation of reciprocal gift. Right? He was never fulfilled in a creature. Alone, man does not completely realize his essence. He realizes it only by existing with someone, and put even more deeply and completely by existing for someone. Okay, so in original solitude, we don't completely realize the image of God in us. We realize it by existing with someone and for someone, right? So you see Pope Benedict's language there. (coughs) Communion of persons means living in a reciprocal for, we both are for the other, in a relationship of reciprocal gift. That relation is the fulfillment of our original solitude. The at last expression is an expression of joy that confirms the process of our individuation in the world. Right? We've gone through this life. I'm not like this. I'm not like this. I'm not like this. And then the at last moment comes. And it's born, so to speak, from the very very depth of human solitude, which he lives out as a person in the face of all of the creatures and all of their beings. He seems to say, look, a body that expresses a person... Like, this isn't a person, this isn't a person, this isn't a person. I'm all alone as a person. And then he says, this body expresses a person. The human body in its masculinity and femininity expresses the reciprocal gift. Femininity for masculinity and masculinity for femininity. This is the body. A witness to creation is a fundamental gift and therefore a witness to love as the source from which the same giving springs. Genesis 2.24, going back to that phrase, it speaks of the ordering of man's masculinity and femininity to an end, the life of the spouses slash parents. Man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two become one flesh. It's the ordering of masculinity and femininity to the end of becoming spouses and parents. Aware of the procreative power of his own body and of his own sex, man is at the same time free from the constraint of his own body and his own sex. So in the beginning, there's a freedom from constraints. So I don't give myself to this woman because I have to. I do this because I choose to. I I give myself freely. In the wedding ceremony, we say, have you come here freely and without reservation to give yourselves to each other in marriage? And we expect this freedom, which means they have the freedom to say no. They could say no, but they say yes. We cannot say yes unless we could say no. So there's a seminarian who went to dinner with me over Christmas break, and he said, Father, I just really need to work on like my ability to say no. Like, I want to be able to leave the seminary. He doesn't want to leave the seminary. He wants to be able to leave the seminary. Because right now he feels like he's on a train and he can't get off the train. And he's afraid that he's going to get ordained without really saying yes because he doesn't know if he has the freedom to say no. Because you just sort of get far enough along and you're like, I've wasted all this time in school. What the heck am I going to do with my life if I don't become a priest right now? 
And so the freedom to say yes only exists when we're free to say no. That's what it means to be free from constraints. Now, it's possible that we make decisions under constraints and then find freedom and we give ourselves over to that in freedom. Right? Like, it took me seven years into my priesthood before I started to say, I want to be a priest. But that's the kind of freedom that we want. We want the ability to say no so that we have freedom. You know, and I think this is an important thing to bring up when we talk about developing virtues. If we're talking about developing virtues, that means we have the freedom to say no so that we can say yes. So we have temperance so that we can enjoy things. Because I can say no to a pan of scotcheroos, I can really enjoy it when I decide to eat one. But right now I just eat my way through the pan without thinking about it. It's a freedom from the sexual drive or compulsion. Created by love, endowed in their being with masculinity and femininity, both are naked because they are free with the freedom of the gift. Okay, They're free with the very freedom of the gift. So in that line being naked without shame, right? they have the freedom to say yes or to say no. Man is the only creature willed for his own sake. We talked about that yesterday, God in 22, which refers to our solitude. Man can only find, fully find himself through a sincere gift of self, refers to that unity. And so self-mastery, again, is necessary. It's necessary to have self-mastery in order to make a gift of self. So if kids cannot put their toys away when it's time to be done playing, they don't have self-mastery, and they can't really have freedom. They're a slave to their toys, or they're a slave to their iPad, or they're a slave to their iPod. And we as adults are also slaves to our mobile devices, most of us. I mean, how many times do we check our email in a day on a mobile device? Like 40. It's ridiculous. Feeling a little lonely right now. Did anybody email me? Oh, no. I'm such a loser. And it goes back in my pocket. It's like a it's like a recipe to have low self-esteem. <laughs> Cuz every time I check it, I feel unloved. I'm like, nobody emailed me. Man and woman find each other reciprocally, right? Like they find each other. They're both fulfilled by the other. They welcome the other as somebody that's created for their own sake. So when I see this person, I know that they were created for their own sake, and I love them for their own sake, not for my sake. The other is unique and unrepeatable, and they're chosen by eternal love. Okay, the other is unique and unrepeatable. You know, like those are words of affirmation to tell people that they're unique and unrepeatable. It doesn't matter what God thinks about everybody else. You're unique and unrepeatable in his eyes. You are beloved son. You are beloved daughter. In the whole order of creation, man will not cease to confer a spousal meaning on his own body. Even in the period of historical sinfulness, the road from the mystery of creation to the redemption of the body. So 
throughout that whole timeline of salvation history where we talked about things are good, then they become distorted, then we get redeemed, and then we go to heaven, the spousal meaning of the body remains intact. Like we are always created for relationship, and we're always seeking relationship. So even in the period of distortion, that spousal meaning of the body remains intact. We still seek to love and to be loved. It just happens in a distorted way. And consistent giving bears witness to rootedness in love. When we're able to be consistent givers, it bears witness to the fact that we're rooted in the love of the Father. The only way to be a consistent giver is to be rooted in the love of the Father. Otherwise, we feel like we empty ourselves out. The beginning is the original and beatifying immunity from shame as the result of love. So when we reflect on how things are supposed to be, there's no shame. Why? Because of the experience of love. That experience of affirmation. It's love that cuts through shame in our lives. You know, the fastest road to helping somebody to get over shame in their life is to proclaim God's mercy to them. And to continually proclaim God's mercy to them until they believe it. And sometimes it takes time and time and time and time and time. And a consistency in proclaiming God's mercy to them. And one of my favorite students I ever taught started off the year drawing pentagrams on his papers and being an atheist. And he would turn in his quiz with a pentagram drawn on it. And I would just say, why are you drawing a pentagram? And he would explain to me it's about nature and unity and all of this stuff. And I was like, huh, interesting. You should come talk to me sometime. Oh, yeah, whatever. Okay. So then, like, it comes time to do our religious order papers, and he wants to do a presentation on pastafinarianism, <laughs> right, which is a made-up religion from Kansas that they made up when they were challenging the creation stories in the classrooms and things like that. So I said, so I let him do it. I let him do this whole, like, presentation on pastafinarianism. <laughs> and it's all about, like, this pirate and a spaghetti monster or something like that. Yeah, so I let him do this, and he presents it in class at Pius, you know, and everybody's really interested in learning about it. And, uh, and then he says, so, Father, is it still okay if I come see you? Sure. So he comes in and sees me, and we just talk, talk, talk. Eventually, he says, so what do I have to do to be Catholic again? And... So what did that take? It took consistency. Because what did he want me to do? He wanted me to sit a pentagram and say, you're a bad person, I don't want to talk to you. And that consistency in proclaiming God's mercy sort of brought him around. Now, there's another kid who, his grandma makes him come see me. Some of you might know this. His grandma makes him come see me because he gets in trouble or whatever. And I'm like, how am I supposed to talk to a kid whose grandma makes him come see me? So he comes in, and he comes in my office, and he just sits there, and he's like, how's it going? You don't want to be here, do you? I don't care. Uh, Okay, well, tell me about your life. We just talk about school. How many fights did you get in this week? 
whatever, just small talk, small talk, small talk, small talk, small talk. Then I just started saying, like, do you know how much God loves you? And he's like, yeah, he loves everybody. You know, so many people believe that. Like, we are unique and unrepeatable. But when I say God loves you, the answer is he loves everybody. He only loves me because he has to because I'm part of the everybody. No, he loves you. Like, he loves you, your name. He's always been watching over you, your name. da 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 a couple of weeks later, or a couple of times later, I come back to my office. He's coming in at four, and I'm like, oh, I wonder what that's going to be like. And I show up, and there's three kids there, like three knucklehead kids. And I'm thinking to myself, what did they do? <laughs> Grandma's bringing three kids coming to my office. <laughs> so they march into the office, and this kid looks at me, and he's like, Father, how's it going? These are my friends. And I went to church last week, and I went to confession last week. And uh, I brought my friend to church, and these are my friends, and they want to talk to you. He's like, talk! (laughs) And so what happened, like, he started to actually believe that God loves him, and he started telling his friends that he goes to see this priest, and then they're really curious, and so they came to see this priest. And his friends have never come back. But, um, like, like, that's how evangelization happens. Right? But it's this continual proclamation of you are unique and unrepeatable, God loves you, you are a son, that they start to believe it and it starts to cut through um, whatever shame they have in their life. And it's amazing to watch that happen. Like Those are really great days. Original innocence radically excludes the shame of the body and the relation between man and woman and it eliminates the necessity of this shame in man in his heart or in his conscience. Mm-hmm. So that original state of innocence excludes shame. <clears throat> the human will is originally innocent, right? We originally always wanted the true good for the other. <clears throat> Acceptance and welcoming of the other because God willed them for their own sake always existed in original innocence. Right? I accept you as somebody God wills for your own sake. I welcome you because God wills you for your own sake. This goes back to babies should be welcome, not wanted. The contrary would be a loss of the gift. We wouldn't have that ethos of the gift. It would be about this person is an object to fulfill something that's missing in me. The exchange of the gift is realized by persevering or preserving the inner characteristic of self-donation and of the acceptance of the other as gift. The woman is given by the creator to the man. She is welcomed by the man as a gift. She discovers herself thanks to the fact that she has been received by the man. She discovers herself in that experience of the affirmation of the man. The man enriches her by his very reception and at the same time he too is enriched in this reciprocal relationship. He comes to know himself in the relationship with the woman. She becomes the purpose and the ordering of his life. So the man's act of self-donation in, in answer to that of the woman is for him himself an enrichment. In fact, it is here that the specific essence, as it were, of his masculinity is manifested, which, through the reality of the body and of its sex, reaches the innermost depth of self-possession, thanks to which he is able to both give himself 
and to receive the gift of the other. Right? In that act of self-donation, he realizes himself. Before becoming a husband and wife, man and woman come forth as brother and sister in the same humanity. So John Paul II uses this a lot. He talks about how they're brother and sister before husband and wife, which makes us go, ew, gross. But it's about being brother and sister in the same humanity. So Song of Songs refers to my sister and my bride. And because they're of the same humanity, they both have value insofar as they are the image of God. If man and woman cease being reciprocally a disinterested gift, as they were for one another in the mystery of creation, they recognize that they are naked. It is then that shame about that nakedness is born in them, a shame they did not feel in the state of original innocence. Right? When they cease being a disinterested gift, then they realize they're naked and experience shame. Sister. Can you expand on disinterested? Like you and pushing you away. Yep. So there are four phenomenological dimensions of love. One, two, three, four. Okay. This is from Jose Noriega, was my teacher. And based on St. Thomas. So the first is carnal which is a dimension of love. The second is emotional. Okay? Which is also part of love. The third is the personal dimension. The fourth is the religious dimension. Okay? Carnal, emotional, personal, religious. So the carnal dimension of love is that dimension of love that involves the body. The emotional dimension of love refers to how I emotionally respond to this person. So it's about how I feel myself when I'm around this person. I get all butterflies in my stomach. Feel excited, etc., etc., etc. Okay, it's how I feel. The personal dimension is to love the other for their own sake. <clears throat> okay, to love the other person for who they are. <clears throat> and the religious dimension is when we love the other person and we see them as a gift from God and we experience the God of love in the person. Right? So, like, for God's sake. Now, in the act of falling in love, or the dynamic of falling in love, you have, like, the attraction to somebody usually starts with an attraction to their body. And then you're moved towards them, and you start to talk to them. And as you talk to them, you develop an emotional response. Like, you feel good when you're around them. You're happy when they're happy. You're sad when they're sad. You start to develop empathy. And then as you get to know them better, you realize they're not who you thought they were, but you love who they are in themselves. And then you start to realize, God gave me this person. Right? And so falling in love kind of follows this ordering. And so chastity, like 
chaste love, healthy love, holy love, is the integration of these four things. The integration of those four things in the proper order, like in the proper balance. So disinterested love means I love the person for their own sake. Okay, unchastity, when we talk about original sin, unchastity, the way I've started to prefer to talk about it, is the isolation of one dimension from the other three. So there's this form of traditional unchastity where we say the only value this person has is their bodily value for me. And then there is this kind of emotional unchastity, though I don't prefer Sarah Swafford's presentation of it, but there is a form of emotional unchastity where the only thing that matters is how I feel around this person. Okay, when somebody falls into the isolation of the emotional dimension, they often lose sight of who the person really is and they have a fantasy about who they're with. These are people who continue to stay with people who are abusive towards them. Because they like, but they're really a good person. Even though objectively that's not who they are. There can be the isolation of the personal dimension of love manifested by pilgrims and Puritans and people like that. <laughs> okay, Where we have a puritanical approach to things. And that's where we say, love is not about feelings. Love is just a choice. It's about gutting it out. Yay. <laughs> right? And so when we start to say it's not about the physical aspect, it's not about emotional aspects, it's just a choice, you just make it, you stick with it, like you're falling into that isolation of the personal dimension. And then there is such a thing as the isolation of the religious dimension, which is when we kind of lose sight of the sort of humanity of love and we turn it all into a spiritual exercise. And it is prevalent. Like, it is prevalent in certain circles within the church. And, um, like, C.S. Lewis talks about that. When, like, he talks about all these dynamics of when this kind of love becomes a demon. And so people who take, like their conjugal life so seriously as a married couple that it all becomes this like uber sacred thing and they like kind of forget that it's just sort of a normal thing that happens between two people and sometimes it's funny and sometimes people fart and things like that so I think he actually says that in the book okay it's in his section on Eros when he talks about Eros and Venus and the distortions that come in there um, but that's also something that like I have started to see in couples um, and it comes up a lot with NFP. It comes up a lot with the NFP instructors. So, okay. So that helps us understand disinterested. And I also wanted to get those four dimensions out there. All right. We're doing questions. Somebody call my name. No. Okay. Father, I have two questions. Is the definition that you gave of identity, a feeling of who I am, to be seen as a way to relate to the secular notion of identity mainly. Okay, so... I'm guessing this, what this means is, like, are we only saying it that way so that we can relate to secular society, or is this a legitimate ide- definition? Okay, so when we talk about somebody's identity, the way they understand themselves 
it is like the way they understand themselves. Like, so it is a feeling about who they are. And some people have strong identity and some people have weak identity. And you know that because you've seen that in experience. That there are people who have this really strong, we call them strong personality and like weak personality. Right? If you don't believe that there's a spectrum of masculine identity from what, I mean, we all know people who have weak masculine identity. Like they sort of like identify more they're just effeminate people. They're men, they're heterosexual, they're attractive people, but they might have weak identity. Um, and that's movable. It's always movable. And it's always changing. Like my identity in Christ is totally different today than it was last year, than it was six months ago, than it was two years ago. I am more confident in who I am in Christ now than I was at the beginning of the year. Because our Lord entered into my life and he did something to change something. I'm much more secure in our Lord's love for me now than it was like three months ago our Lord showed me something that was a distortion in my life that I hadn't cataloged yet. It was the weirdest thing. It was like breaking up with my high school girlfriend. And that that was a huge loss that I never really cataloged as a loss. I never really grieved it. But she was a person that I could rest in. She was a person that I just had fun with. She was a person that I didn't care who I was around her. I would be a total goofball when I was walking around with her in public and I didn't care. Like, that's the kind of love that I had for this person. And then I broke up with her because God wants me to be a priest. And then, like, I never really had that kind of relationship with another person in my life. Even God. And I never spoke of it. I never brought it up in spiritual direction. I never talked to anybody about it. I never spoke of it. Because it, like, hurt really bad. And so I brought this up in therapy one day. My therapist was like, what are you hiding from me? And I just brought it up. And then she thought it was really important. Then I brought it to my spiritual director. And he spent the whole time on it. And kind of helped me to see that that was an experience God gave me so that I would know how to have that relationship with him. And when I started to see that, I started to be able to like rest in our Lord in a totally new way and to be more confident in him, to be more confident in what he's calling me to do. So my identity changed. And in fact, my feeling about who I am changed because I could be insecure because sometimes like, I have to wonder, like, what is God trying to do with my life? And sometimes I don't want to do it. Two years ago, I had to ask myself the question, do I want to be known for fighting pornography all over the country? And I wasn't sure if I did. <laughs> I was like, do I want to put videos on YouTube so that people will know that this is what I do? I don't know if I did. And like, two weeks ago, I was on Catholic Answers Live talking about pornography. So now that's who I am. Like... And I was okay with that because our Lord helped to solidify who I am in Him. Right, so identity does move, and it is a feeling about who we are. And there's a certain confidence about who we are. And so people have insecurity. That means they have an inconfidence about who they are. Okay. It seems like a subjective definition that is necessary but doesn't express the fullness since our objective identity is who we are created by God that has nothing to do with how I feel. So our objective identity, yes, it is. Like you are created by God, therefore you are his son or his daughter, but we still have to battle with like, how do I assimilate that and receive that from our Lord? Because a relationship is about a relationship and we're still a subject. And we can live up here in our heads and say, objectively, I know this is true, but 
sometimes like the fullness of our life is to be an integrated person and God gave us emotions and he gave us an affectivity and like the fullness of integrated life would mean that in my heart, like I know that I'm a son or a daughter of God. And that can be different than objectively. Cause I could tell you what objectively I know the truth is would be like my whole career of teaching high school before I went to Rome versus since I've been back. Since I've been back, I could tell you my ministry is much more fruitful than it was before I left. Because before I was talking about a theory, and now I'm speaking from a relationship. Right? And I'm not saying I'm wholly and totally integrated, just I'm more integrated than I was before. And so my experience of it is that. Um, and I think that you know, for a lot of us, we could see that. You know, uh, lots of people, when they fall in love with their husband or their wife, they know intellectually their husband loves them, but they have trouble believing that. Like, this person's told me a million times I'll always be there for you, but I just can't, like, believe there's something in me that's, like, resistant to that. Uh, I understand clearly why the puzzle piece image of union of man and woman is inadequate. Do you have a pictorial image that would be accurate that could be used with students for a visual? I would just use that same, like, image of the Trinitarian image that I've been using the whole time as a pictorial image for that. Right? Like, you're two people who are both, like, individual and whole in yourselves who enter into relationship with each other. Right? That's what I would do um, with that. Is there healthy shame? When people make you feel shame, what do you do? Avoid, return to sonship, confront. Um, Okay, so this begs a lot of questions. Um, Is there healthy shame? After the fall, there's healthy shame. Healthy shame is something that protects us from being hurt by other people. Okay, that's what healthy shame is. That's the way that John Paul II describes like this experience of shame in which they cover themselves to protect themselves from being exploited by another person. Okay, so there's a sense of that being healthy shame. All right, unhealthy shame is when there is a vast distance between the way I see myself and the world sees me, and I spend all my energy maintaining the facade for how the world will see me. And so shame is measured by the difference between the way I see myself and the world sees me. So somebody could say to me, good job, you're such a great priest. And inside I'm like, I'm horrible. I don't call my mom on Saturday. Like whatever it might be. And so when we have that kind of unhealthy shame, it's this belief that people won't love me if they really knew me. And that belief that people won't love me if they really knew me gets in the way of our relationships with others. It gets in the way of our relationship with God. And then it says, when people make you feel shame. So this begs the question, can somebody make you feel? And the answer is no. It's a great book called Boundaries by Townsend and Cloud. Okay, people can't make you feel you do feel shame in regard to certain circumstances, right? Like you might feel shame when, um, I'm trying to think of an example. Like, uh, I don't know when you're made to feel like not good enough or you didn't do well enough. 
um, is an example of some time that you might feel shame. Um, so we talk about shaming people a lot in, um, in the work that I do with addiction. And so that would be like when somebody says, if you'd only make a holy hour every day, you would stop that behavior. Right? This it can increase shame because then the person is making their holy hour and it's not stopping their behavior and then they feel like God must really hate me because I'm making a holy hour and it's not stopping my behavior and so like Mary's mad at me or something like that. And they're blaming the Blessed Virgin Mary. And so that can sort of increase shame. Normalizing things helps to reduce shame, like helping people understand their own life and their own wounds and the things that have affected them and why they make the decisions they make. It helps to reduce shame. So when people make you feel shame or when you feel shame, yes, return to sonship, um, but also like confront, clarify, like try to address, like why am I feeling this way or why am I responding this way to this person? There's a discussion of both working on our relationship with God and fostering adequate relationships with people. I find people generally exhausting. I'm one of those people who do not tend to try to foster relationships with the people. Where do I start trying to work on that? And like we all have different degrees of extrovertedness and introvertedness. So <clears throat> I would say that... If it's very difficult engaging in relationships with other people, to just like start with one person and having a relationship with one person. One person can be a relationship. And as we grow in our relationship with our Lord, then it becomes more free to be in relationships with others. You know, I was talking to somebody who said, you know, before they did Unbound, they were like afraid of people and really shy. And then after they did Unbound, they now they like talk to people and they're like helping other people and they never thought they'd be helping other people. Um, so like to try to start with the small things that are attainable is really important. Yeah. There's a lot of questions today. You mentioned about where a man's masculinity is received. Is a woman's feminine identity discovered in relation to a group of women or her mother? Or is it different? So, <clears throat> I think it is different. I haven't read a lot of studies on like this aspect of things um, because, frankly, there's a lot of women's studies and not a lot of men's studies. And men's studies usually turn into gay studies in universities, um, sociology. Um, but there is something... If, <clears throat> if like femininity has more to do with receiving and trusting than giving, wanting the good, right? Because typically we do say, like, men are an active principle, women are a receptive principle, da-da-da. Women love by gathering to themselves, men sort of love by protecting. Those kind of stereotypes, like, there's something true in them. <coughs> and so, like, a feminine identity, a femininity is, <coughs> like, more closely aligned with that childhood identity and receiving and so it's more natural state and more natural transition. Um, but I do think that there is an element of being received, welcomed, aligning with the same-sex parent like in which somebody receives their feminine identity. Um, like some people, and I haven't talked a lot to um, 
like women who struggle with rejecting their feminine identity because there's like they're never on the news like a woman who wants to become a man is never really on the news is not really covered we don't talk about that as much um which also shows the objectification of our society and and things like that but um but I would say that there is something about that uh, alignment with the same-sex parent and like the need to have the same-sex parent in the house to align with. Um, and sometimes when that relationship is difficult, there can be a rejection of femininity, etc. Or there can be an alignment with the dad. But most of the time, people grow out of that as they get older. If there's the space to grow out of it. What about those children whose parents have always told them that they were a mistake? They can never, uh, that they never intended on having them and never wanted them. And reminded the child uh, that their entire life, did these children just never attach to anyone? What becomes of those kids? So somebody who is told that over and over again, they probably do have like severe attachment issues. Um, but I do think if we're in contact with them that we help them to retell the story of their life in terms of God created them for a reason. And like if their parents didn't want them, like God really had to work hard to bring them into the world. And that God has a plan for their life. And there's a whole slew of unplanned unwanted children in Matthew's genealogy to go through in order to show that even through all of that family, our Lord entered into the world and sort of to proclaim like that acceptance to them as much as we can, because it's not about being wanted. It's about being welcomed into the world and finding our identity in Christ and knowing our origins come from God. And, um, and those children would have a lot of pain what becomes of those kids, sometimes they probably end up, you know, not really entering into good relationships. Sometimes they might have somebody enter into their life and change everything, and they become saints. So what becomes of them probably is really dependent on, like, how we, when we're, when we're able, proclaim the gospel to them. You know, because you never know the impact you have on people. You never know the impact you have on people. There's a student I taught at Pius my first year, and she was going to leave Pius and go to East. But, like, I started off just teaching about love the first three days, and then she decided to stay at Pius. And then, then I never really talked to her again. And then I came back from Rome in studies, and she became my spiritual director. Like, she just ended up coming back. I have students that I taught many years ago, and they call me up, and they're like, Father, I need to talk to you. And it might just be advice, like girlfriend advice or something like that, but... But they come back. Um, like Mark Wahlberg, sometimes we want to turn him into a mega Catholic. I think he's just like a normal Catholic. He's a movie star, right? Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch. <laughs> but his story is like he grew up in a rough neighborhood and not really secure family. But there was this one priest who he always knew he could go to and talk to. And he wasn't going to daily mass. Right? He was just like, he would just go talk to this priest. And he always stayed close, like, identified with the church. And, like, I think now he's fairly more faithful, mass-going person. Now, it's not, like, the path of the ideal, but it's the path of redemption. 
so as much as we can be the image of God in people's lives. We need to. Subscribing that God has chosen one person is subscribing to the myth of soulmates. What would be a good way to explain discerning a vocation to marriage? So, okay, I'm going to talk about this when we get to the marriage section, if we get to the marriage section. (laughs) But, everybody, like, like when we talk about male and female, he created them. That means the natural state of life for a human being is marriage. God created us for communion. The natural vocation is marriage. Celibacy for the sake of the kingdom is a supernatural vocation. So that really needs to be discerned. Is God calling me out of this state of marriage to this state of being an image of Christ's love for the church? <clears throat> so, so does somebody really need to discern whether or not they're called to marriage? No, it's kind of a baseline. Does somebody need to discern, is this the right person to marry? Yes. So, is this the right person to marry? Then you discern, is this person trustworthy? Is this somebody that I can entrust my life to? One of the questions you could ask is, like, guy asks, guy tells girl, I love you. And she says, what good do you want from me? Like, what good do you want for my life? Because if you love me, you want the good for me. So what good do you want for me? And you might have to list off all these, like, material good, like, whatever. And I want you to have a house. I want you to, like, have be a mother. I want you to have kids. I want, like, you to be the most important person in my life. I want, this is the good I want for you. And just ask that question. Like, what good do you want for me? That would be a way of discerning. Is this somebody I want to entrust my life to? People ask that, there'd be a lot less second dates. <laughs> I don't know. But but I think that that would be a good question to describe discerning whether or not I'm supposed to marry this person. Um, Yesterday you mentioned that every sin against chastity and of impurity is the result of the loss of our identity as sons and daughters of God. How are those sins the result of the loss of our identity? Stay tuned. That's like the whole point of the next section. Why are most people in TOB class mostly female? This is about gender identity. It's a good question. Why is church attendance usually two-thirds women, one-third men? In contrast, in most Muslim communities, the strong religious leaders are male. Okay. So, for the Christian, we are called to be children of God, sons in the Son, etc., etc., etc. So some people would say that women have an advantage over men because they are more relational and so like contemplative prayer comes easier to women than men um, we also have a lot of religious sisters represented here so that throws off the proportions and we also in a class four teachers have way more female teachers than male teachers in the diocese of Lincoln at least I don't know about Omaha what Omaha looks like but I'd imagine it's about the same because we pay so well that somebody could actually support a family on a Catholic school salary and diocesan insurance plan. So 
so that would be how I'd explain like that, but also that a lot of men don't feel like called to. Um, they don't feel like called to greater service in the church or to um, embrace that relationship with our Lord. That's why men's ministries are really important. Like that man is you, like hundreds of guys go to that man is you at five in the morning on a Thursday because even though we don't receive our identity by pounding cross rifles into our chest, we still like to feel tough by getting up at 4.30 in the morning and going to church early. Um, In contrast, in most Muslim communities, the strong religious leaders are male. So Islam, and I'm only, this is going to be my two-minute Islam class. Islam believes in a mono-being God, not a triune God. So in Islam, God cannot be love. Because he cannot love because there's no adequate receiver for the love. So the Muslim God cannot make a gift of himself to another, nor receive the gift of another. He's a mono-being. And so by necessity, he must be a tyrant. And it's a master-slave relation. So, And that's what Islam means. Islam means to submit as a slave to a master. And by submitting as a slave to a master, you bring about salam, peace. And a Muslim is the person that submits himself to the master. It's an Arabic grammar class. Um, So so in Islam, there's something attractive to the image of God who is a tyrant for men. And... Muslim men are also tend to be very frustrated people. So there's a really interesting article in a book. It's only published in Italian. It's called Emoti Bruschi, which is about like masculinity in different cultures. And it talks about how in Muslim culture, because of the fact that women are devalued and the unitive meaning of sexuality is devalued, they practice feminine circumcision in a lot of Arab countries and when you practice feminine circumcision that means a husband can never please his wife and so he always lives in a perpetual state of frustration because there's something unsatisfying in his relationship with his wife and so this is an explanation for why a lot of times Arab men are very aggressive and they need to work out their masculinity in terms of like war mongering instead of finding their masculinity in relation to a person that they enter into a relationship of love with because they never really are affirmed in their relationship with their wife. Their wife is like property. And, and that goes to like some of the details of human sexuality that are struggles for married couples a lot of times, but they are really important um, as well, especially for marriage preparation and marriage enrichment, marriage counseling. Um, so so it, the Muslim man has like a higher place in the church, and it's actually like a place where those kind of qualities are affirmed that probably aren't very helpful for civilization. Um, Okay. There is the ugly acronym. Unconditionally, God loves you. There is a culture of indifference. On U.S. college campuses, suicide is the second most cause of death after homicide. What is the incentive to be the best person you can be? Um... I don't really know how to answer that. 
So, like, there is a high suicide rate on campuses right now. There's a high suicide rate in general. Um, and I think that the incentive to be the best person you can be, my answer to that's going to be God's mercy again. It's like that encounter that tells you that everything you believe about yourself is wrong. And there's something else there. I think one of the like unhealthy relational life like is a big cause of suicide. Like the feeling that just there's something wrong with me. There's no way to resolve it. There's nothing I can do. And so I'm going to commit suicide because it's better than living in this state of just feeling like something's wrong all the time. Um, like with, and we don't foster hope either because we live in a world that lives in the present. Like one of my theories about military suicide is that Skype has been bad for our soldiers because people don't write letters. So like a letter that's received from a loved one at home for a soldier is something he keeps in his helmet. And when he's out on patrol or whatever, he pulls it out and he rereads it. And then he puts it back in his helmet. And then he pulls it out and he rereads it. He puts it back in his Kevlar. And it's a constant reminder. And the, le- the content of the letter would be this hopeful reunion that will happen when I get through this. So it points him to the future. Skype allows him to see his loved one at home doing her normal daily things while he's in a war zone. And what he sees is everything's unraveling at home in this particular moment. My kids are running around, they're crazy, and he realizes that he's not there, he's here. And he starts thinking about being there and not here, which loses focus. And so it's like looking backwards instead of looking to the future. So instead of hope, it's bringing about this contradiction. And we live in a world where we don't look forward to anything. I don't think there's very few things we look forward to because we can have everything now. You can have everything you want now. You don't have to look forward to anything. Like, if you want information, you can have it now. Conversations become boring because Google has all the answers to your questions. You can't have, like, a a hypothetical conversation about, like, who's that actor? You just pull out your phone. Oh, yeah, he was in that movie. Done. What else do you want to talk about? Nothing. So a friend of mine was just talking about their daughter who went out, you know, for her birthday or something like that. Her curfew is like 12, but she came home at 10. He was like, what were you doing? Oh, we were just hanging out at South Point. And why are you home so early? Oh, we were just bored. We were done. Like, there's nothing to talk about. There's nothing to do. We're all bored. So we go home. You know, when we were kids, we would like drive around and do stupid stuff. <laughs> and we just make up something dumb to do. And, like, that creativity is not, like, there's something missing in that creativity as well because all the answers are right there. And, and so, like, how can we foster hope? You know, this is something that we should also try to foster is how can we foster hope? How can we start looking to a future? Because the hope just means that it's going to be better than it is right now. And I believe in looking to the future where things are going to be better than they are right now. And, but so many times we get trapped in the present where it's like, this is what it is. If I can't fix it now, it's never going to get fixed. 
and we have very little tolerance for pain and we have little tolerance for suffering we have little tolerance for boredom we have little tolerance for silence and all of that is corroding like hope this encounter with god mercy like we should like practice loneliness sometimes we should practice solitude jesus always went off where to a lonely place to pray which means he went to a place where he actually would feel lonely in order to be able to open up that loneliness to god the father and be in communion with him you know and we go off to a lonely we're feeling a little bit lonely i'm like pulling out my phone and seeing who twittered what and sometimes that becomes a huge distraction, you know, whether it's that or something else. So, um, I mean, how do we engender a culture of hope in the world? Like, this is, I think, one of the key questions that we all have to address, you know, in our own classrooms, in our own world, and, like, on college campuses especially. Like, how do we engender a culture of hope? Um, because what we have is very little tolerance for waiting around for things to get better people aren't dating anymore like this is just the culture that we live in there's an article college students don't go on dates because it's too much work they just get out their phone there's an app called tinder it says like these are the people in your area you look at their picture i like them i don't like them if two people match they like each other then they just meet and hook up hey romance but that's actually going on. That's like where, that's what people are doing. And it starts with like them learning who they are from a young age and learning to have relationships from a young age as much as we can help them to learn to do that. <clears throat> because it's only, I think it's only going to get worse. It's either going to get worse or it's going to get better. We're at that kind of crisis point. Like we're either going to change and get better, we're going to like have this amazing thing, or it's just going to go, and some people will get worse and some people will get better. And our Lord is in charge of it all. Thank God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together. And we continue to ask your blessings on us as we seek to understand, comprehend, and internalize your love. Your love for us. And your plan for human and divine love in the world. Ask your blessings upon all present here in all of their endeavors, upon all their families, all their friends. And through the intercession of the Blessed Virgin Mary, St. Joseph, and all the saints, may Almighty God bless you all, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you all. See you tomorrow. <clears throat> so I'll have the audio.